Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel, and joining me is the newly anointed pigeon. What's happening, Ian? A, a lot's happening. Uh, my my tweet about Dale Hunter and Mark Hunter did not age the best over the past mm. week and a half. I didn't even yeah. see that until someone sent it to me, and I I think I texted you being like, "Uh, Ian." It was a, a bit of a controversial tweet. So, and then what happened? That's the best way of putting it, is that, and then what happened? A lot of people will tweet that when you have a bad take on Twitter. Just quote tweet it and then put, and then what happened? But uh, Brandon Prust, I, I thought his response was much better. He said, uh, what's that, you effing pigeon? Crazy how some hockey fans will still listen to someone that's probably never touched a hockey stick. So, so it, was, it was a fun day. I, th- I think we, we sorted out our differences of opinion. I know he played for the Hunters. Long story short, I put out a tweet... After Canada lost that Russia game uh, back in the preliminary rounds and said that Dale Hunter and Mark Hunter are two of the most overrated hockey minds of our generation, convince me I'm wrong. And in the, in the next week and a half afterwards, I think they did a pretty good job convincing everyone I was wrong. But uh, Also, I, I, though, we'll get into this because we're going to talk about sample sizes today. Winning one tournament does not immediately change an opinion on years of something, but I just found it interesting. I think you and I were texting and... And the response you got after Canada won, and obviously congratulations to Canada, we're both Canadians, um, we were both kind of happy to see that, but it was like you offended their king in the response that they, like their tone of response was uh, not the most necessary, I would say. Well, I don't know, this is the thing, whenever you say something that's a bit controversial, it's going to rile some people up. So here's my opinion on, on Dale and Mark Hunter. Long story short, I think they did a great job building the London Knights, especially in the early to mid-2000s. They built it up into a, a modern-day dynasty in the OHL. Now, over the last 10 years, I'd make an argument that thanks to some shenanigans and kind of shady behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. stuff and taking some players later in a draft knowing that they're going to sign with the London Knights but not any other OHL team, I think that's given them a big competitive advantage over the last decade. So I'd say their OHL success in, in recent years is pretty overrated. But I do, I'm willing to admit that Dale Hunter and Mark Hunter have done a great job in junior. I just think when we look at their track record at the NHL level, you have Dale Hunter coming in and basically ruining Alex Ovechkin as, a, as an offensive firepower, you know, the best goal scorer on the planet. Right after Dale Hunter stops coaching Ovechkin, he goes on to win how many straight uh, Rocket Richard trophies? Yeah. So I don't know. I, th- I think that's an indictment on the coach, in my opinion. Mark Hunter running the Leafs drafts. They bu- they drafted a bunch of tall dudes who couldn't skate. And had, like, I think Alex Dabrinkit was on the board and a-, a bunch of other just names that you see and you go, oh. Wasn't, like, Sebastian Ajo available or something like that? Ajo was available. That was the draft before um, when they picked Travis Dermott ahead of him. And uh. here's the thing. Travis Dermott turned into a pretty good hockey player, so it's hard to complain too much about that. But I don't know. You just look at Mark Hunter's drafting record at the NHL level. I don't love it. But then again, you look at his drafting record at the OHL level and how he took chances on some smaller, skilled players, you know, like Mitch Marner back okay, in but, the day. Okay, uh, but it's widely known that Marner said, I'm committing to the NCAA, and then London drafted him, I think, at 18th or 20th overall, and then miraculously, three days later, his dad came out and was like, actually, Mitch is going to go to London. 
And that's how they get a lot of their players. And that's how I think that London's become a little bit overrated recently. But again, they deserve all the credit for building that program in the first place. Right, the brand. And in the OHL, a lot of shenanigans go on. It's just kind of the way that the league is. But I think I offended a lot of people who treat the Hunters as these hockey deities. I think they're good. I think they're smart to a certain degree. And I think that they have... um, I, I think they're underrated in the fact that they've innovated a lot at the OHL level when it comes to the way that they use the European export draft for or the the way that they target undervalued, you know, smaller, more skilled players. I think that is a, a thing that they've done over the last 10, 15 years. But I also think that they're overrated in the eyes of the quote unquote 200 hockey men because I got some responses over some texts and messages right after I tweeted that. Your, I, the response to your tweet was the epitome of people coming to the defense of the 200 hockey men like when i try and sum up the 200 hockey men and their staunch defenders in something very easy for someone to understand that's probably what i'm going to show them is like this is a tweet from someone and look at all of the people coming to the defense of two of the 200 hockey men and you don't have to agree with me i mean it's of course not unpopular opinion but the fact that I said something negative about these two hockey gods in Canada, all of a sudden you have people who have played for them just coming at you on Twitter, and okay, I get it, you know, not not always going to agree on hockey opinions, but the fact that so many people, the fact that so many people were so riled up by it kind of proves my point, is it, kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, it, it definitely does, and the fact that people, oh, just because this is the uh, usual way of thinking or the common way of thinking that if you have an opinion outside of that, you're automatically a pigeon or stupid or not to be listened to. You and I don't agree on things and we probably don't agree fully on the hunters either. Cause I think that the brand they've built, like they deserve the success that they have in London. And I, I would say that there's definitely some things that happen in the OHL and across the CHL and London is certainly not excluded from them. Um, that are a bit, uh, offside, let's say, in terms of recruiting and getting players. But at the same time, just because you and I differ, like I'm not going to attack you and you're not going to attack me. Like That's just all of a sudden the first thing we go to is calling someone a pigeon. I do like that insult, though, for what it's worth. I've been Ian called that pigeon a lot of graph. times over text in the last days. <laughs> pigeon Navy, is that what Dangle called you? If nothing else, my brand, it's, it's getting dunked on with like really creative insults, and I do like it. I, I, I hope that it continues over the next couple of years. You're going to have so many nicknames. Like you, sh- you should have to put a pigeon in your Twitter bio. Like the, what Is there the a emoji? pigeon emoji? I was looking for one the other day, and I think there are bird emojis, but I don't think there's I one think exclusive to I think that basically pigeons, suffices. Find so. a gray bird. Okay, I'll see what I can do. But while we're on the topic of the hunters, can we talk about your boy Barrett Hayton? Oh. Because that goal that he scored, that was my favorite moment of the game. So for anyone who didn't know, he he suffered a major shoulder injury the game before. I don't think they disclosed the injury. There's rumors that it was broken, that it's no. separated. I don't really so know what, what the it injury is, was. Is a grade one shoulder separation, and I've actually had this injury, so I know what it feels like. Um, of course, you've had this injury. You've had every injury known to mankind. Honestly, our tech start is basically like I fell down the stairs today. Um, no, when I was playing hockey, I actually, well, my shoulder dislocated and it ended up in a shoulder separation multiple times. Because the thing about shoulder separations is once you do it once, you're susceptible to 
it repeating itself. It's one of those, it's kind of like a back or a hip like strain. If you do it, it's very repeatable. Um, and I know Austin Matthews, that's why he's always been tentative with his shoulder ever since suffering that injury. Right. So I can tell you that the most difficult thing to do as a hockey player, other than hitting, which I didn't have as a female hockey player, is to shoot a puck. So the fact that he got that laser beam as accurately and as hard as he did off in the gold medal game, I, I couldn't believe it. Ten minutes left in the third period, down by a goal. Like It's just such a clutch moment. It seems like something Jordan Eberle would have done, you know? <laughs> oh, man. That guy's the, the most clutch player in world junior history, without a doubt. But Barrett Hayton's trying to take his title now. I know you've always been high on his talent as a 200-foot player. I was very... Skeptical. Uh, yeah, especially of picking him over Quinn Hughes at the time, which I still think was... Yeah, I wouldn't have picked him over Quinn Hughes. I would have taken Quinn Hughes probably at three or four, though. But I don't think I had Barrett Hayton ranked in my top 10 or top 15 because I thought he was very overrated at the time. And I'm starting to come around on your opinion on him. I'm really curious to see if he has that kind of Patrice Bergeron, Ryan O'Reilly, Sean Couturier kind of career. See, because I could at- see him being exactly like Sean Couture in terms of trajectory where maybe he starts off a little bit slow but he's still very good defensively uh he's very reliable he's gonna play on the penalty kill and then bam the offense comes a bit later in his prime in his 20s especially if you start playing him with some elite players I'm not sure long term what the Arizona Coyotes roster is going to look like I know Clayton Keller's obviously someone they have locked up long term Barrett Hayton they're hoping can be a top six center for them I am more intrigued by this Arizona roster the more I look at it. Now that you have Phil Kessel and Taylor Hall there, it's just fascinating. Is Barrett Hayton going to be called back up now after the World Juniors? Is that the plan? Um, I would not be shocked if he was out for a month or two now. Uh, and I'm literally <laughs> not kidding. Like, shoulder separations suck. They take forever to Like, if that's not heal. the gold medal game, he probably isn't playing in it? Oh my god, no. And I would make the argument that I get it, like, hockey, Patrice Bergeron plays with a punctured lung in the cup finals. Um, Let's not pretend that that's a good idea. Like, it's not a good idea health-wise for the long term of the athlete to play in a situation like that. And I would say that if it's a regular season game, Baird Hayden isn't playing. You will probably see that he doesn't play for at least two or three weeks, if not longer. My favorite hockey movie of all time, uh, Miracle, that the, the Herb Brooks, the coach, asks, can he hurt it any worse to the to medical <laughs> trainer? And, and he says, well, no, but it's going to be ridiculously painful to play through. And then he tells the guy, oh, you're playing. You're fine. You just <laughs> drug him up on cortisone and every kind of drug that isn't banned by water. And what's amazing to me is, like, you can't have Sudafed, which is basically, like, cough and cold medication, but you can inject cortisone into your body so that you don't feel pain in that area. Horse, horse tranquilizer, <laughs> like to whatever the injured part of the body is, yeah. and you're good to go. So it's a little backwards, but since like Barrett Hayden's a pretty good um, way to talk about scouting because uh, I made the stupid decision to log on to, to Twitter during the World Juniors. I didn't tweet anything, but I logged on just to kind of take the temperature and see what was happening. And the amount of people who became scouts from watching the World Juniors was absolutely astounding to me. Oh, it happens every year. I mean, you look at draft rankings after the World Juniors, they change drastically all of a sudden. let's talk about that. A sample size. 
World Juniors, you play seven, maybe eight games. And all of a sudden, we have this guy dropping and this guy leaping up. And we're going to throw out two, maybe even in some cases with a guy like Lafreniere, three seasons of heavily scouted data and game viewings for a seven or eight game tournament. Like you and I are stats people. Uh, Does that make a lot of sense to you? No, it doesn't. But uh, talking to Corey Pronman about this, he had a really interesting way of describing it. What he said is that on a per-game basis, the World Juniors games do matter more because you're facing elite competition and we're getting to see players play against each other who we normally don't get to see. And sometimes there's a question of league strike. Exactly. And especially for guys who come from maybe some lower levels, especially I know at the U18s, when there's a guy who's playing like in the Alberta Junior Hockey League or the the BC Hockey League, you know, it's a level down from the OHL. Exactly. Getting to see them against their peers on an international stage, it is a bit helpful because you can realize, oh, my God, he is a bit of he's a step faster than his peers. I mean, obviously, he's a step faster than the players in these lower leagues. But even when you're comparing him to his his draft comparables, he's clearly a notch above them. And he has the vision to make these passes and he's generating scoring chances. Now, point, point totals and shooting percentage, those can fluctuate like crazy in smaller samples. But I tend to be looking more at the process in these games. And to a certain extent, I think it does matter a lot. Now, is it does it matter more than anything that players ever done that entire season? No, you want to uh, you know combine it along with the. Okay, the video so hang on, we left out something. We talked about playing in lower leagues, but there's also players, somebody like Grigory Denisenko, for example, or Tim Stutzla. They're playing in professional leagues, and Denisenko Stutzla is a bit different because he's playing top line minutes, but Denisenko is playing like seven or eight minutes in the KHL. And of course, you're not producing anything when you're not playing on the power play and you're playing fourth line minutes. That's not where you're supposed to be playing. Then he comes to a tournament like this and then you see them look really good. A player like Alexander Romanov for Russia, right? He He's dominant when he's on the ice. And you view that in a stronger light than his eight minutes in the KHL, or another one that I'm kind of thinking of is Quinton Byfield plays in the OHL is dominating, but he, I don't think he played one second in the gold medal game. And that somehow has a bearing on his draft stock just because the coach didn't want to play him like that. It makes less than zero sense. I get that we have to value the games a little bit more, but seven World Junior games does not equate to an entire season of league play. I remember uh, during Svechnikov's draft year, he didn't get much, uh, he didn't get a lot of minutes for Russia, but Zadina got a ton of minutes for the Czech Republic, you know, top power play unit, top line, and Zadina scored a bazillion goals in that tournament. Svechnikov didn't impress too much. But if you've watched Svechnikov play at the OHL level, it's clear that even the year before, when he was 16 in the USHL, he was a dominant offensive force who was going to be a 30-goal scorer at the NHL level, maybe a 40-goal scorer when he hits his prime. Zadina, I've always liked, but I think it was clear to anyone who's you know watched a lot of hockey that Svechnikov was the superior prospect. But if you only watched the World Juniors, you'd probably come away thinking that Zadina was the better player. So that's part of the problem with these small samples. Agreed. And I think that you have to, and this is why scouts are scouts, and that's a conversation for probably a different day, in terms of overvaluing 
and undervaluing. We have people shouting and screaming on Twitter that Byfield has overtaken Lafreniere and then Byfield doesn't play and Lafreniere stars in the World Junior and all of a sudden it's like, he's a joke, he's not even a top five pick. And it's like, whoa, chill for a second. You can't have the opinion that he's going to challenge a guy for the number one pick and then two weeks later, he's not even in your top five. To be fair, I thought the idea that Byfield was going to overtake Alexi was Lafreniere... Was ridiculous to begin with? Me too. I don't know about ridiculous, but I was hearing it from a lot of um, you know reputable scouts that, hey, uh, some people have Byfield ranked ahead, and I'm just thinking Lafreniere has been the elite dominant force over the last two, three seasons. He's doing it again this year. It's unfortunate because I feel like he completely de- demolished the queue last year and isn't really going to prove anything by going back to it again this year. Much like Jack Hughes going back to the USHL after dominating it the year before with the development program. I would have liked to have seen those players in a pro league, similar to what Austin Matthews did in his draft year. After dominating the development program as a, as a, in his pre-draft year, he thought, there's no point in me going back to this again. I'm just going to go overseas to Norway. Or was it Norway that he went to? Uh, Switzerland. Switzerland, my mistake. Sorry, he went to Switzerland and played in the Pro League there, I think under Mark Crawford. Right, and, and I think it's also important to point out that Lafreniere is almost a year older than Byfield. Like He is in this tournament as an 18-year-old, a full 18-year-old, and Byfield's still a 17-year-old. And if you remember last year, he didn't dominate the same way that he did this year. Like I don't think it's a stretch to say that Lafreniere was probably, when playing, the best player in this tournament. This is where age curves get crazy. From 16 to 17, from 17 to 18, and 18 to 19, you grow exponentially. You look at players in in the NHL who literally just played in the NHL as an 18-year-old, even if they didn't do well. They just played and they somehow stayed in the league. It's a huge indicator of future success because it's not easy to play in the NHL at 18. And that's why in junior, you look at the players who are putting up the most points. It's the 19-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, you know, it's it's the players who are more physically mature. It's really hard for a 16 or 17-year-old to dominate older players. So when they do that, that's a big sign of, okay, we need to keep an eye on this guy. Because if he's doing this at age 16 and 17, what's he going to be doing at 18, 19, 20? That's kind of where we look at the age curve and the trajectory and the growth of a player. And that's why... Uh, age adjustments matter a lot when we're looking at point production in junior. And it's why people are so high on Byfield because what he's doing as a 17-year-old is way more impressive than if a player was doing the same thing at age 18. So it does matter. It really comes into into play here. Yeah, and I think that when you're overrating, underrating, or just rating players in general, you have to look at their development curve, right? Look at how Lafreniere's developed. Look at how Byfield's developed. Look at how Holtz and Raymond have developed and take that into consideration because you these players are not just all born on the same day. They're not having the exact same trajectories either. And I think we'll talk Some about this. Some of them this. hit puberty a lot earlier than others. Yeah, and we'll talk about this later in the Kovalev shift, but um, catching late bloomers, guys who don't develop as quickly because maybe they did hit puberty later or whatever. I mean, maybe they didn't have a good development program because wherever they came from didn't have that until they moved somewhere where they were in a good development program. Like, that's something to definitely consider. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later. But when it comes to the World Juniors as a whole, when it comes to this whole uh, the, the, the Team Canada, Dale Hunter, Mark Hunter, uh, them you know coming back from that big uh, loss to Russia and overcoming the, the lead in the third period, we also had that... 
that weird uh, camera incident in the game that I feel like we need to talk about because <laughs> this is good. that is the best. Is like we talked about the double IHF officiating and how it's so tight, and some of them were extremely not penalties. But then you have something like that where it's hilarious. So if anyone somehow missed the game, Canada is. Uh, they're, they've already taken one penalty, and Russia's pulled their goalie. Last minute of the game, Russia's trailing by one. They're, they're pouring on the pressure. It's a six-on-four for Russia. They're in the offensive zone, and Canada flips the puck over the glass. I forget which player it was, but he flips it over the glass, and you can see from the TSN camera angle, the camera that is on top of the glass off to the side. So if the puck were to hit the camera, it means that the puck went over the glass. And you can see clearly from the camera that the puck leaves the player's stick, goes over the glass, and then the camera kind of vibrates because the puck hit it. So it's very clear that this should be a penalty. All four officials talk. No penalty is called. Russia's furious. I think 10 seconds later, they take a dumb penalty, and then the game's basically over. Um, I put out a tweet, I think summing up the incident, that it's ironic how Russia got screwed over by North American surveillance. So... (laughs) I think I think that sums up the tournament for Did you. Did you actually put nutshell. that tweet out? Yeah, it, it, Ian. That, that's one of my. <laughs> Ian, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. It's too easy. It was right there. It's just it was there for the taking. Someone was gonna make that joke. Might as well be me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's why when people were yelling and screaming about. Um, being disrespectful to the Russians, I the one of the best tweets I saw was someone saying, you know what, the other countries will start respecting Russia when they stop systematically cheating at every sport. Or, you know, elections. Or, or you know, like, we, literally we can, anything. We, we can keep politics out of this for, for a few minutes if we want to, but uh, yeah, well, it was a just heartbreaking end for the Russians there. You hate to see it. Yeah, I genuinely did feel bad because I put myself in the other person's shoes, and if that had been Canada... I would have snapped. Like, I would have been there would have so been, angry. Like, there would have been a royal commission. Oh, my God. The like, I genuinely do think the Russians got jobbed there. Um, but I... Like, then it would have been a six-on-three, and I yeah. don't know how long it takes to score in a six-on-three, but I'd imagine pretty quickly. Yeah. It's... You should score on a six on three. I mean, you have double the players out there. For 30 seconds, 45 seconds, I think they would have potted one. Yeah, I I agree. All right, so moving, we're talking about sample size and, and how it's used in scouting, but what about once you get to the NHL, you're evaluating teams, and you do this a lot. You do a ton of deep dives and and a bunch of articles, and I like reading them. Um, I have you saved in my tab in The Athletic. Um, I think you're one of like five or six people that I actually read as a routine. Um, I appreciate that. And when you're evaluating a team in the NHL, I know a lot of people talk about what is statistically significant or um, what they use to train their models type of thing. For you, when you're saying, okay, uh, this is basically a streak or no, this is statistically significant. What What is your kind of barrier for that? Whether it be a player or a team. Dom had a great article about this that really made me think because I was always of the opinion that the first month of the season never mattered that much to me just because teams were trying to get their systems in place. And then Dom had this great article talking about, you know, the randomness, uh, the noise, 
compared to the signal. And what that means in stats is that even though there might be a lot of randomness in a small sample, there's still some signal there. There's still something that is indicating, okay, there, there's some predictive value here where because this team has looked really good in a 10-game sample, maybe they're not guaranteed to look good over the next 72, but they're more likely to do better than a team who's really struggled in their, those first 10 games. So... There's never going to be a perfect number where I say, okay, now that I've seen this many games from this team, I know exactly what they are. Because in hockey, sometimes the bounces don't go your way. Sometimes your goaltender has a rough month. Sometimes your shooters go cold. And you can be a dominant team in the regular season, go into a playoff series, and just hit a brick wall. And like we saw the Tampa Bay Lightning, they lost four straight and they were out after the best regular season of the last 20 years. So to say that anyone can perfectly predict hockey, I think is just completely been disproven by the Vegas Golden Knights in their first season. No one expected that team to be that great. And they went on to run to the cup final and they're still one of the better teams in hockey. So I think we're all kind of learning about the game more and just trying to be less wrong in our predictions over time, much like baseball. It's such a random sport from game to game. I think if you look at which team uh, who deserves to win ends up actually winning in hockey and baseball, it's much lower than in sports like basketball and football. And then when you throw in the 82-game sample size of the, the NBA regular season, the NBA, the better teams tend to have the best records. In hockey, it's a small sample of season, like 82 games compared to baseball's 162. And you have a, a, a random sport that's heavily reliant on save percentage and shooting percentage. And you have a lot of randomness and you have a lot of stuff that's tough to predict. So, so speaking, speaking of that, we can talk about how like the Leafs have been on a tear under Sheldon Keefe, and is that statistically significant? Uh, the Nashville Predators announced that they fired Peter Laviolette. So is that... Do we have a statistically significant amount of data to say that maybe he wasn't the guy in Nashville and, and there's still something there, or is is there a bigger issue in Nashville other than maybe they just need a coaching change? Yeah, the hard part with um, with numbers here is that we don't have access to some of the, the really good data when it comes to, you know, odd man rushes and uh, passes off the rush, passes through the slot that would really increase the shooting percentage of any shot. You know, if you play goalie, you know that, you know, cross crease pass, you're not saving that. So we don't have that in the public data, but what we do have is pretty good. You know, it's we have the shots and we have the shot locations and we can use that to say, OK, are you getting out shot on a consistent basis at five and five? Are you getting out chanced on a consistent basis? If that's the case, that's not very good. So what teams were you referring to there? You're referring to Nashville, I guess, with Peter LaViolette? Yeah, because so, they he just got fired and they're not naming a term head coach. So I would assume there's probably something coming in the way of an announcement uh, before their game against Boston. But we talk about, are, have the Leafs changed? Um, will Nashville change or like what? What's statistically significant for you to say, nope, there's a tangible, repeatable change in these numbers? Like, what, what's your barometer? What's your kind of threshold for, nope, this is a good amount of data when you're making an evaluation? I usually like about 20 to 25 games before I get too serious about analysis. You know, in the first 10 to 15 games, much like Dom's article pointed out, it's like there's sometimes there's some some signal there that you can use to go, okay, there's something really happening here. But, you know, five games, that any team can go through a, a stretch of five bad games, you know, five great games. So I, I like to have a bit of a bigger sample there. With, with respect to the Leafs, under Mike Babcock, 
it, they're interesting because their shot differential, their ability to get into the offensive zone, they were actually pretty good. They were above average in something like Corsi, just straight up shots at five on five. But scoring chances and expected goals on offense, they were shooting from the blue line. They were shooting from the boards most of the time. They weren't getting to that high danger area. Under Sheldon Keefe, they've been able to get to it a lot better. And I think if you're watching video, you can see that systemically that comes from the way that they're playing in the offensive zone. They have their third forward coming up high towards the blue line. That allows the defenseman to kind of pinch more down towards the boards. And then they're looking to create that cross-ice pass into the slot. And they've been doing a much better job at creating that. You wouldn't necessarily be able to pick that up from the numbers. You can from the shot locations. But if we're just strictly talking about passes and, and pre-shot movement in the offensive zone that's something you can't find publicly I think that's where video analysis comes into play and it's something you can clearly see is, is a point of emphasis under Sheldon Keefe that the team wasn't doing as well under Mike Babcock with Peter Laviolette it'll be interesting to see what this new coach does Who, who's the interim head coach over the next uh, I guess few months they, they haven't they said there's no interim head coach as of right now so that leads me to believe that they're going to name someone like and an actual long-term head coach whether it be Mike Babcock Mike Babcock <laughs> um John Hines who like who else is kind of out there Yeah I'm trying to think maybe they're waiting on Bruce Boudreaux to get fired in, in Minnesota but they just keep winning games so it's it's impossible for him to to go find a new team I feel bad for Bruce Boudreaux I want him to coach a legitimately talented team to see what he could do with them but uh, yeah, with Nashville, I think you want to watch the tape to see what they're doing different tactically, and then you want to see if that shows itself in the results, because sometimes a team can be appearing to do some things that are helping them, but if it doesn't you know, show up in the shots and the scoring chances and the goals, is it really working, or is that just your eyes playing tricks on you? So, so I think you do need to combine kind of the, the, the tangible evidence with the, the video to come to a, a proper conclusion. And with Sheldon Keefe, I'd make the conclusion that, yeah, this team is significantly better under him. They are facing some weaker teams, but if you look at what they do against some of the stronger defensive teams in this league, like the New York Islanders, I think they're still doing a great job at maintaining puck possession, especially on the breakout and on line changes. They're really prioritizing it, moving the puck back you know, to the defenseman, getting the forwards off the ice, passing it up to the forwards, getting the defenseman off the ice. It's just a smart way of making sure that you have the puck as much as possible and you always have fresh legs on the ice. And it's been showing itself in the results. So I think that's an example of where both the video and the numbers are pointing in the right direction or pointing in the same direction. And we can make a definitive, definitive conclusion based on it. I'm not sure what to say about Nashville because I thought they were playing decently. Now, they weren't a top five team in the NHL, which is probably where they'd like to see themselves. But again, without P.K. Subban on that blue line, I know he's not the same defenseman he was, but... I'm not sure if Dante Fabro is ready for that top four role yet. I, I like Nashville's forwards a lot better, but I'm not sure if their blue line is as good as they think it is. You know, contender-worthy defense. I'm not sure if I'm there yet on Nashville. But again, adding Matt Duchesne up front, I guess they thought that they'd be scoring a lot more goals than they currently are. So maybe they're looking for a new head coach to kind of unlock some of that speed and talent up front. I think there's also another good example in the fact that Tampa is obviously... Um, they started the season by their standards terribly and there was whispers about John Cooper and and there was a lot of people and I think you and I included kind of saying like just hang on like it's it's really only been 15 hasn't really even been 20 games and then like lo and behold you look at the last 10 or 15 games and they're basically on the same point pace as they were last year. Like, I, I think don't... they just had too much talent for us to not think it would eventually Right, and everyone's writing them off, and I'm kind of like, that's... 
And that's where we talk about sample sizes. Okay, we know Tampa's really good. They didn't really lose any key parts to their team. They probably just had a rough start, but the numbers over the past few seasons would indicate they're a better team than this. And then I think Justin Bourne wrote an article about why you shouldn't write them off, and I think they're like 8-0 and or something since that article came out. 17 game samples since December 1st. They're first in the league in shot differential at 5-5, five and five, first in the league in scoring chance differential, uh, goals, their power plays clicking. This is the team that we all thought. Right, it's back be. to what it was last season. And when we talk about models that do predictions, so like Dom's model or Scott Cullen's model, I know Manny Elk doesn't have his um, on. He's too busy tweeting about the Grinch these days. But um, <laughs> they say they use three years of data, Micah's model. And and so it's not just 17 games. It's not just 15 games. So you are still seeing that in all of their projections, Tampa's still rated as this juggernaut team to continue to to be successful. And, and it seems like they've started to turn it around and have gotten back to the team that we sort of have been expecting. And I know when I was trying to work on my individual player rating system, I was trying to come up with something similar to Dom's game score. I tried to make it a bit more complex. I learned that the best way to predict future performance is to take multiple years into account. And basically what you do is you weight the more recent seasons a bit heavier. So let's say I'm using uh, this past season, the previous season, and the year before that. I'm looking at three years. I'll weight the first season about 44%. I'll weight the, the season before that about 33%. And the season before that about 22%. It all adds up to 100 but basically you don't want to throw out data from a couple years ago you want to include it but at the same time the more recent performance does matter more so you include it all and you find a way to weight it all and that's what the best models are doing out there exactly and it's all about finding the right balance also can we talk about how bad the winnipeg jets have been at five and five because i feel like people don't realize that connor hellebuck has been like single-handedly saving their season why don't we do that next week? We'll give them, I think, as we record this, they're going to play in the Montreal Canadiens. We'll do that next week, but I think we got to get into our uh, our Kovalev shift here. Okay, the Alexei Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Socks. You bet. Alrighty, so this is where we hop on the ice, our coach doesn't let us off the ice, and we kind of Alexei Kovalev float around for a few minutes. What are we going to be talking about today? Since we were talking about sample size and scouting, how can statistical analysis catch late bloomers, so a guy like Brad Marchand, for example, and will over-reliance on stats lead to missing these types of players? I know I have some preliminary thoughts on this, um, but I'm curious as to kind of what you think as well. So I'm not sure if I have a statistical answer, but the first player who comes to mind for me, of course, I'm a Leafs fan, so I know the Leafs a lot better than I know other teams. Andreas Janssen in his draft year um, didn't perform that great. Because he and had asthma? <laughs> he was diagnosed with asthma. He'd had, ha- he'd had asthma his entire life and didn't know it. And I just can't imagine a player not knowing they had asthma because I played with asthma. And your, your lungs, it, it, it's like trying to suck air through a straw, except it's cold air and you're not getting enough of it. And then you have your little blue puffer and it opens up that straw a bit. It's still not a great amount of air, but you're getting like three times as much as you're used to getting. And it does help you finish the game, especially in a third period where you're completely gassed with asthma. You need your blue puffer on the bench. Anyone who has asthma. And yeah. They, and they basically exactly what it what does is about. it it helps open up. Asthma is caused by like bronchoconstriction, which is when your bronchioles 
which are part of your lungs, constrict and close on each other. And, and the ventolin, which is what's in the blue puffer, helps to relax those muscles and, and open them up again so that you can actually get proper air in. And so it's a serious thing. I've been waiting for Dr. Dory to make an appearance on the podcast. You what have you all this mean? knowledge that you've been learning at, uh, you've, been, you've been like taking your, your master's here, you know all this biological stuff, but you're like getting into the nitty gritty of So what's funny terms. is I when like Ilya Mikhaev got his like wrist uh, cut and they said, oh, it was like an artery and, and tendons, I immediately went to my anatomy and like injury kind of chart like cheat chart that I made and I was like oh yeah it's probably based on like where he was bleeding from like this this and this and and but obviously they didn't announce it but I was kind of trying to see okay that would affect his ability to do this with his wrist or this with his arm fingers various different things but yeah I I would say that statistical analysis might prevent these late bloomers because They'll, they might be identified with underlying numbers. So like Mitch Brown does a ton of really good CHL tracking where he tracks things that are repeatable that don't necessarily show up in the scoreline or on elite prospects, but they show up in expected goals or expected assists, and, and that's more repeatable. And so I think that you actually might have, you won't see a scenario, I think, where a guy like Pavel Datsuk is available. Um, Because I just think there's too much homework being done and there's too much mathematical analysis being done on top of the interviews and, and things like that. And then you have stuff like the Combine where they're measuring everything and it's interesting because a guy actually uh one of the professors at york has done the nh he's headed up the the combine testing for a number of years and and they look for things that predispose athletes to injuries and that's not something that was available even five years ago so you're looking at stuff like that you look at an athlete who maybe isn't performing to his potential but has all these really good indicators that he will maybe that's a that's a late bloomer candidate kind of thing. And so maybe that kid gets taken because all of these indicators were now found at the combine with all this new testing that we have available to us. And so maybe it prevents the late bloomers from happening. And when they do, it's it's once in a blue moon and it's basically either the team's development or it's by accident. Another case I'm thinking of is a player who produces extremely well in a in a limited role where they're not given power play time and they're not given maybe minutes on the first line or maybe not even the second line. A player who comes to mind, I know when I was doing a lot of draft analysis back in the day, Andrew, I don't know how we pronounce it, Man- Mangia Mangia Pani. I, I pronounce it Mangiapane because that's like an Italian name and it means eat bread. It's an awesome <laughs> name. <laughs> but in his first year in the OHL for the Barry Colts, he had 51 points in 68 games. Nothing that you'd, you'd look at and go, oh my God, that's elite. But he w- wasn't playing very many okay, minutes. Okay, so I can and... tell you because Mangiapane was playing while I was with Sudbury. And LeBanc was obviously the dominant player. But I remember every time this guy was on the ice, I would think to myself, like, he's really little and doesn't get a ton of ice time. But every time he's on the ice, he scares the daylights out of me. Like, it's a constant clip of, oh, yep, gotta gotta look at this. Oh, he just turned our defenseman inside out. Oh, he just did a nice little net drive. So it's one of those things where opportunity also comes into it. And I think that's a really good point with a, a perfect example. 
Yep, and then his next two seasons in the OHL, over 100 points both seasons. Uh, was He was soon a, a point-per-game player in the AHL, and now he's a regular in the NHL. Is he a top-line player? No, but he's someone that you could identify at age 16. This guy needs more of a role, and he hasn't been getting enough minutes, and if he gets more minutes, I bet you he produces. I know David Pasternak, when he was playing as an 18-year-old and 19-year-old in Boston, he wasn't getting top-line, top-six power play time. But his under his numbers, his points per 60, goals, assists per 60, they were all through the roof. And then he started getting more minutes, and he started producing more. And it's just like, if you put talented players in a position to succeed, most of the time, they'll, they'll prove that they're those talented players who are going to keep producing. All right, and I think with that, we're going to get off the ice. So that was our Alexi Kovalev shift, brought to you by Major League Socks. You go to MajorLeagueSocks.com. Pick your favorite pair of socks or multiple pairs like I do very often and use the code STAFFGRAPH for 15% off at checkout. It's pretty great. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I wear the socks every game day and they're pretty comfy and they're good quality. My girlfriend likes to wear the Bab socks now just to, to make me laugh. <laughs> and uh, she works for KMH too, to be fair, so that uh, there's... There's a bit in there where it's kind of like become our thing because I'm I was always uh, very frustrated with Mike Babcock over the last year or two, and she knew that the proceeds went to Cam H. So uh, Major League Socks, formerly the artist formerly known as Bab Socks, you can still get Bab Socks there for for the 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 love of your your life, uh, the Leafs fan in your life. Uh, I don't know if they have Sheldon Keefe socks ready yet, but they need some Keefe socks. I would definitely buy a pair of Sheldon Keefe socks. Oh yeah, like a pair of Keefe. Keefe socks. I saw someone bring up like Keefe's briefs, but I don't think that they're going to go that way because I feel like that's just a really dangerous direction. It's a slippery um, slope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? What if what if they got a pair of staff and graph socks and they used the our like podcast picture as as oh, the I love the little little uh, ginger emoji guy. The ginger emoji. Me. He's in the little blue suit. He looks way more put together than I am in my real life. I, I always try to look up. Can to confirm. Guy. Very much can <laughs> confirm. 100% true. Yeah. So Major League Socks, uh, use the code STAFFGRAPH, all one word. And that's the best way to help support the podcast right now. Yeah, for sure. And they're two really good guys at Major League Socks. We love working with them. Um, and we might be doing an event in the upcoming future. So look out for that. Um, fun. If I can but get my schooling under control. If um, I can get my sleep schedule under control. Yeah, Jesus Ian woke Christ. up at... So it is about 7 o'clock on Monday night, and Ian woke up at 6.10 today. To be fair, to be fair that's not normal. That's not no. normal. Normal for me is around noonish. I want to okay, say. Okay, but 6 p.m. Okay. The reason that my sleep schedule's messed up is because, A, my girlfriend works nights, and I'm trying to, like, accommodate her schedule. Also, I need to peak between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. for the Leafs report cards. I don't like being tired in the third period. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, at my full kind of mental capacity when I'm taking all these notes. So I've pushed my sleep schedule back a little bit. When I started the season, I told myself it was going to be, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., it started reverting back to like 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and I need to fix it. So uh, check in on me next week to find out if I'm still nocturnal because I'm not loving it. I'm not loving waking up and the sun being down. It's really messing me up. So we'll see if I can fix so this a little bit. So now you're Ian Pigeon Owl Graph because owls are bat. 
Bat graph. Bat graph. A lot, lot of birds. A lot of birds There's a lot graphs. of bird talk going on. <laughs> All right. Speaking of bird and pigeon carrying, let's get to the mailbag. And I feel like this is... We're going to go with one question this week because this is kind of... I think it's a bit of a longer question. Um... If you could change something about the NHL draft, whatever it is, what would it be? Whew, that is such a good question. Uh, like, it could be age, it could be, um, it has to be kind of like football or basketball where NCAA player, like, you can't be drafted, you have to stay in school and then you declare. Can I go a bit revolutionary on it? Do it. End it? Kill the draft, get rid of the draft, like in soccer, and let players go to whatever uh, workplace they want uh, to, just like in the real world. Because like in- of, I had this conversation with someone in in the NHL when I was working. Um, I'm shocked that someone who works in the NHL doesn't want to change the system. That's been no, no, in the no, NHL and it wasn't that. It, it wasn't. It wasn't that. He, this person actually had a. a, a pretty well thought out reason because they could see the arguments for both this person's a massive soccer fan um but basically what this person said was the whole idea of having parity and why we have revenue sharing is so that all teams can be competitive and if you took away something like the draft kids that would want to play in toronto or want to play in montreal want to play basically for their hometown teams, those teams would have an inherent advantage. Think about how many kids come from the Toronto area that want to play in Toronto that, or in Montreal. Like Think of Alexi Lafreniere, for example. You'd be getting a star. The Leafs would have McDavid. Like there's, It creates a really, really ugly situation in terms of parity in the league because you just you'd never have players to go to the non-traditional hockey markets and therefore you just wouldn't be able to grow the game because they'd never have a superstar. And I know that we see that in uh, let's any real league, basically, like in the English Premier League, there are teams that you know are not going to compete for a title, but they see a good season as, you know, not getting relegated. Or if they come in 10th instead of 15th out of 20, that's a good season for them. That's and soccer has academies, to. right? Like Toronto FC has an academy and there's not a lot of a academies on this side of the pond but actually a great example is in uh, in Sweden they treat hockey like they treat soccer they have academies so Frölunda and uh Skelleftica and and a bunch of these um teams they actually have academies and, and a guy like Rasmus Dahlin went through the Frölunda academy I believe yeah, and you see it. Like, there's like the under 18 version of that team, the under 20 version right. of that team, and then the adult league version of that team. Right. And I just don't think that you could do that because, let's face it, there are NHL teams that can't afford to run their NHL team without revenue sharing, never mind an academy and a feeder team and, and everything associated with it. Like, I don't really feel like people understand how expensive an academy is. Also, hockey is inherently a more expensive sport than, than soccer, so it would be just difficult. Yeah, soccer, you need running. shoes, and you actually don't need shoes. There are kids who play in bare feet with a rolled-up ball of socks, and in hockey, that just doesn't cut it. Yeah, and with respect to your point about parity, I do think that the NHL has a uh, unhealthy obsession with parity in a sport that is inherently random and, and, and luck-based, and you're going to have bad teams perform well just based on luck alone. So 
I don't think you need to have this stupid loser point. I'm not sure if we need to reward losing through the draft. I, I just think that there are so many times the league is obsessed with the fact that a bad team can play well and a, and a, and a good team doesn't have to pull out. And at the end of the day, don't we want meritocracy to some degree? Don't we want a team that's elite to perform well and a team that's bad to perform poorly? Or are we just interested in every team finishing with 90 points? Like, I'm, I'm not sure what we're looking for as a league. No, and uh, I would say my change to the draft, um, where the lottery's concerned, I, I think it's a bit of a clown car. I really do. Um, I'm kind of a fan of just no lottery at all. Or if you're going to have this stupid thing where ping pong balls decide decide who's who's going where, then if you win the lottery, you can't. No matter how atrocious you are, you can't win or you can't pick first, second, or third for X number of years. So, first oh, this of is all, the uh, the Edmonton Oilers rule, the the Cleveland Cavaliers rule. Just like no, stop it. You've been rewarded enough with ping pong balls. We already threw you a bone a few years back. You don't need another first overall pick. Get your shit together. So so here we go. Perfect example. Edmonton Oilers. More recently, the Devils got Nico Heischer first overall. Last year, they should have been excluded from getting Jack Hughes. You get- Taylor Hall's team is not allowed to win the draft lottery. Right. And it's one of those <laughs> things where I would say, first of all, if you're going to do a lottery, it's only for the first overall pick. Then if you win the first overall pick, you now don't get another first overall pick for the next three drafts. And if you screw it up, that is your problem. I'd be down for that. Right? But for me, like... I just, oh, I I would like to see either you have to be older to be drafted, so maybe we move the draft class up one year. Um, that way we maybe have a better handle on, on everyone's development. I also think the September 15th rule is, like, really stupid. Just make it by birth year. That way we're not having to do all types of gymnastics on well, developing I think the curves. reason for that isn't it the Malcolm Gladwell book you know about how hockey players born in January and February have an un, uh, a competitive advantage on players born later in the year so by having the draft year move to September it helps give those players with later birth years a bit of a chance I at the end of the day you're going to become as good of a hockey player as you're going to become like <laughs> you say that, but then the players who were born in January compared to the players who were born in December. I mean, we know for a fact that it has an impact on things. Oh, I was it a January a baby, so I I completely understand. But I will also tell you that the best player on the team I played on for about four years was somebody born in December. So, like, I don't see a lot of merit to that argument. But for me, it's more about I would like to see. Once you're eliminated from the playoffs, your point total accumulates, and whoever has the most points after being eliminated from the playoffs gets the draft pick. So let's say you're eliminated in March, right? And then you're winning, and you have to still try and continue to win, and obviously the teams that get eliminated later on, closer to the end of March or April, don't have as much of an opportunity to accumulate those points, so obviously they would be further back in the draft order. But then at least it makes for entertaining games because you still have to try and win games because that's how your draft position's decided. Like maybe it's it's something like that, but I just think the way the lottery's done now is completely ridiculous. 
At the same time, I don't know. I, I've never, I've never loved just giving the worst team in the league the first overall pick, just because then you are literally encouraging teams to lose. And I don't know. I'm, I, I, a lot of teams are trying to figure out how to get around this. The NBA is trying to be really progressive and trying to find uh, different proposals of ways that we can change the lottery system because we just we don't like the idea that teams want to lose because in soccer that that philosophy is just completely ridiculous. Oh, yeah, because then you get relegated, which the NHL flat out won't have, um, because that's just not how the sport works. I'd like to see some relegation, honestly. I'd be down Yeah, it's for... never going to happen. It doesn't even happen in MLS. It doesn't happen in North America at all. North America needs to learn that if you're freakishly bad, you need to be punished. <laughs> we are not. I feel like, I feel like I'm becoming a, a, officially I'm becoming old. Like enough of these participation ribbons. <laughs> Literally, I'm so tired. Like, oh, Ian we're not even going down that road. Yeah. All right. So that's what I would change, and Ian would get rid of the draft altogether. Which, personally, like I'd love to see an academy thing happen, but I just I don't think it's feasible based on the financial. Um, dedication that would take, and I don't I think that super there's... teams. I like super teams in the NBA. I like it when there are a few and amazing hockey's more teams. random, so you're not really gonna have super. And teams. that's the thing. Even if you had a super team, they probably wouldn't win the cup. So okay, so here's here's something quickly before we go. You'd have to get rid of the cap at that point because of a let's say a team like Toronto, like Montreal, does all this work developing this kid since he's like ten years old in their academy, and then they can't pay him on the salary cap. Like that's a joke. Well, we've talked about maybe a, a, a soft cap and maybe a Larry Bird rule where if a player was drafted by you, you, you're allowed to go over the cap to retain him. And I don't know. I just I feel like a luxury tax would help the league. I, again, they, they're obsessed with this idea of parity. So even if it helps make the league more money, they don't want to give a competitive advantage to the richer teams. And as a fan of a super rich team, I'm probably biased in this regard. But I don't know. I just I want to see more elite teams and i feel like this obsession with parity leads to a more boring product where the edmonton oilers are garbage and i want the edmonton oilers to be a super team you know i want i want there to be teams where the best player on the team also has a few great players with them and i get that you need to run your organization well to do that but it would be easier to accomplish if there were mechanisms within your league like a soft cap or a larry bird rule where you could make a great team a, a super team, and we just we don't have those mechanisms. If anything, the salary cap forces teams to be worse when they're super dominant, and then the Chicago Blackhawks have to like you know trade away all their decent players. They they were able to reload it really well in the early 2010s there, and you know they picked the right players to hold on to. But I want teams to be able to maintain their dynasties for a few years. I feel like it would be a lot more fun. Alrighty, and with that, that concludes the. Staff and Graph podcast for this week. We'll be back next Tuesday when we'll talk about the Winnipeg Jets next week. There's your your little tease for next week. Looking for Jets fans are already getting ready to, to yell at, at us online. I'm looking forward to it. Connor Hellebuck should win the Vesna and Paul Maurice should be fired. There you go. That's oh, my preview. Okay. <laughs> I can't say Quick I preview. agree with that at all, but sneak preview. Sneak preview of the debate coming for next week. That's that'll be next week when Ian and I are yelling at each other and hopefully Ian wakes up before 6 p.m. Because I feel oh. bad for you that you have to wake up in the dark. That was a, a that was after a few days of not much sleep and then my body just kind of kept going. Yeah, I, night, uh, wasn't great. wasn't great. Right. What sound does a pigeon make before I get out of here? Cuckoo! <laughs> call everybody. We'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. Thank you.